Would you stand just for a minute as we read the scriptures? Yeah, let's, let's applaud because Paul Cody is in the house, vice president of the Northeast Division of Young Life. This is a big dude. I mean, not just a tall guy, but this guy is pretty important in Young Life. I mean, the ministry and the impact that he's having across the United States in young people's lives is, is truly, Paul, one of the greatest works that's happening, I think, in Christendom right now in America. Because what you're doing is you're taking kids that are disconnected from the body of Christ and you're bringing them in and reforming communities all over. And what you're doing is you're connecting them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, uh, in a way that young people can understand. And your ministry has, has truly impacted us. I've been able to serve on your board. Brittany, our middle, I'm sorry that we're like you're seeing the whole family in one weekend. That was not really planned. I wasn't, I didn't know Brooke was doing the announcement. And then I got, I was, I was going to have Brittany come up and then you got Denise and it's way too much of us. So we understand. But the point is, is that we have been connected to your ministry and your family. Um, uh, amazing family. We love you guys. We absolutely love your kids. And uh, I want you to share just a little bit before we read the passage this morning and pray about your life and what you do, Paul, from your perspective, not from my perspective, but what I see. I'm, you're just my friend. You're, you're a brother in Christ. You're, you really have become a close friend. And yet sometimes I just don't realize the weight and importance of your role in Young Life Ministry across the United States. So let us know a little bit about that. Uh, no, go like ahead and sit down. down. Go ahead and sit down. <laughs> Please. It all changed. We're going to sit down too. You know, Young Life has been an amazing journey for me. Uh, I hit this 25-year threshold with Young Life uh, in October. And I did not imagine for one minute that I would have been on staff for 25 years. Uh, I had envisioned three to five years and then I would be on to, to something else. Um, my heart has always been for ministry and so I thought, you know, after five years I'll leave Young Life and I'll start pastoring a church somewhere and that never happened. Um, and that never happened because I feel like the Lord had things for me in the uh, mission and ministry of Young Life that I didn't anticipate. I don't think I could have ever scripted uh, the, way, uh, the way the Lord has uh, used the ministry of Young Life to change me and the ways that the Lord has used me to have an impact on, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids in, in the New York City metro area. Um, when I met, Brit when Brittany and I met, I was leading our New York City team and then that New York City team turned into a New York City and a Long Island team. And then within a couple of years of that, it turned into uh, overseeing uh, the majority of the Northeast. So now I oversee everything from Eastern Pennsylvania to Maine and back to upstate New York. Young Life's big um, relational ministry count is kids known by name. And we've got about 40,000 kids that we actually know by name, not wow. nicknames, not... Wow. You know, hey, we forgot your name. Like forty thousand kids that we actually, that we actually know by name. Probably close to four thousand kids who are going to camp um, every summer and and all the stuff in between. I would say as much perfection as people would look at when you look from the outside in 
at a ministry like Young Life, I'd actually go back and take you to 2 Corinthians 1 and talk to you through the lens of the Apostle Paul, uh, who says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happened to us in the province of Asia. Uh, we were stressed far beyond our ability to endure. And so much we questioned our own life and we actually thought it was over. We were done. This was finished. But he says we came, we, we understood, we figured out something in the process and that the point was is so that we would come to the end of ourself and trust in you who uh, raised Jesus from the dead, who has rescued us, who will rescue us again and will continue to rescue us. Um, I would say the hallmark of Young Life's ministry this year has been the hardest year of my life by far. Um, there was more transition and uh, tragedy and cuts than I'd ever seen in my life. I didn't know you could cut that deep. And we wound up having to transition somewhere around 22 staff. Uh, we went, and many of those folks who we knew and loved and um, had to ask certain people to consider demotions or there wasn't really a job remaining if that didn't happen. And we went from a $6.5 million budget down to a $4.2 million budget. And somehow in the Lord's amazing math in our New York City ministry, somehow the Lord figured out how to allow the ministry to grow in the middle of what I would have considered a desert, thinking about, hey, this could be your last two months on the job. This is not going well. And you could be looking for something else to do. And literally there were some days I thought that it was over. I was finished and I was gonna have to be on to something else. And uh, yet the Lord found a way uh, to protect and preserve and to continue to see us grow, which is actually amazing. And, and you are, and you've stayed steadfast, yes. and you've kept the course. Um, just a little background on Paul. Uh, Shaniqua is your love of your life, yeah. and uh, three amazing kids, Paul, Jeremiah, and Savannah. Yeah. And Paul and Jeremiah now, they were little kids when we first met them. Now they're your height, and I'm, I'm betting that they could take you down. But Not true. Not true. There's, there's still a couple more years to do that. They've li they lift a lot of weights, and they're comfortable with it, but they have not learned how to shift their body weight yet. So until they learn how to use that strength, they're still going to be a victim until. <laughs> I think that's just. At I some point, they're going pride. to figure it out. At some point, they're going to figure out oh, how to yes. shift their weight, and when they do, I'll be Homer Simpson and back away into the bushes. Oh, these are. But until then. Oh, these are amazing kids. And you sent them off to a private school. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, my parents threatened that I, they would do that. <laughs> you actually did that with your kids. Yes. They're in basketball. They're excelling. You, yes. lo you, know, you love your children. But it was for, them, for me, it was military school. It was a threat. Mm -hmm. For you, it was like you're going to grow in yeah. the most profound way. And your young men are growing. And uh, your influence, not only over the young life, but over your family, Living in New York, the, the Long Island, New York area is profound. Hey, let's um, let's teach team. Let's team teach for a minute. Yeah. We're going to look at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter one. We're continuing our Advent series, 
And I asked Paul to, to help me with this passage. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be basically looking at the, the, the narrative the, from Matthew's lens, the birth narrative. And I want to point out just simply two things. Christmas is all wrapped up in a name. It's the names of Jesus. And there are two names. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to be afraid, not to go anywhere, not to change any plans. Stay where you are. Stay put. And here's what the name of your child will be. And in those two names represents what Jesus has come to do. And when we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate Christmas, we're, ce we're celebrating what Jesus has come to do. And it's two things. So here's the passage. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. As it says, Joseph awoke from his sleep. He did as the angel commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. And we know the story develops from there. And in this story, we learn two things about Jesus this Christmas season. First of all, that his name is Savior. And second, his name is Emmanuel. Jesus means Savior, Savior of the world. That's his name. But his name also is Emmanuel, which is God is present with us. God coming down, invading our world with his presence. And I want to talk about, just briefly, Paul, with you about the implications of both of those this Christmas season. We live in a very traumatic, a lot of turmoil in the world today. And as I was thinking of this message, I was thinking of that Linus scene in the Peanuts, uh, 1965, aired uh, on CBS, uh, little small Christmas story uh, story of, of cartoons, of characters uh, that were just in a mad dash getting, trying to get ready for Christmas. Often what it feels like in our lives, a lot of mad dashing. And Linus is the one who stands up, and what does he do? He reads Luke chapter 2, 1 to 14. And he reads the story of don't be afraid, I bring you good news. It will be for all men, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And all of a sudden, all the little peanut characters, what happened? It's like it just settled them, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Everything got quiet. It was like a sense of peace came over the whole Christmas story and the Christmas play that was going on. And I think we need that. I think we need that sense of peace. We need a king who has come, who brings a peace into the world that will settle our hearts. And he does it in two ways. Both he is Jesus, our Savior, and he is Emmanuel, the 
presence of God in our lives. And so let's look at that, Paul, together. Let's talk about the implications. And, and last service, we started with Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And, and wh- where would we want to start there? What, what are the, some of the things that you were thinking about in terms of the presence of God invading our world? So the first thing I think about, even just as you read the two different thoughts, is essentially our rescuer is with us. Mm. And so mm. it's, it's, it's the sense that he is our savior. We required a rescue, and yet he's present with us in it, which really talks about how much he is going to continue to rescue us over time. But I won't get ahead of us yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I think the, the whole notion of the presence of God has been, was, such, was so threatening early on. Right. It was one of those things where there were very few people who got a chance to interact and encounter God face to face and actually live to tell about it. You hear about two people. You hear about Moses's interaction and you hear Jacob say, hey, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't even know it. And so it's one thing to worship God when you know he's with you. And it's a whole nother thing to figure out that you've been worshiping something else until you figure out he was actually there. Uh, He was actually there with you. But early on, it was just this this terrifying presence. Nobody wants to go near him. Hey, Moses, you go up there. We'll stay here. Go meet with the Lord on your own because we don't want the smoke that comes with that. Just we'll be all right. Let us know what he says when you get back. And, And But the intimacy of Emmanuel, God being with us, uh, was so important even to Moses because they, he gets to this place where he asks the most audacious question ever. And it's like, hey, Lord, I want to see you. And the Lord is like, okay, Moses, time out. This is great. I do want you to see me, but you, like, you can't contain everything that you would see. So I'm going to have to make some adjustments to what you see so that you can actually view me in a way that does not kill you. The greatest thing about God being with us is, is he goes from one place where if you see him, he could actually kill you to another place where you can actually be in his presence and be loved. And you can gaze in his eyes and look at everything on his face in a way that you could not in the Old Testament, which is what makes Emmanuel being God with us so powerful, because at that point they had never experienced God being with them. God was either in, in, in a tent. He was either in a mountain. He was in a tent. He was in a tabernacle. But you couldn't really get to him. Even the tabernacle was relegated to certain people. So if you weren't one of the, if the mountain was Moses, nobody, I mean, even Joshua didn't go with him. The tabernacle was all priests. If you weren't a priest, you couldn't get in. And when it was in the, um, when it was in the Ark of the Covenant, nobody could touch it. So at that point, God is untouchable to so many people. And when he says Emmanuel, he, he changes the entire system and says what you could not touch, what you could not taste, what you could not see. Now you'll be able to see live and in person from here into perpetuity. And what was terrifying has now become, in one sense, comforting. Yes. Isn't that amazing? That when Jesus comes, he takes what is most terrifying to us and turns it into what is most comforting. I think of my father. When my father passed, it was a moment in time Mm -hmm. 
when a constant presence, a guiding force was taken from my life. And I remember that moment feeling I no longer have my father's guiding comfort, his confidence, his encouragement, what my dad did in my life. A lot of men's, their woundedness comes from the fact that they didn't have that. And yet God reminds us that even if we didn't have that in an earthly father, we have that in him. Through Jesus, who comes, and in that moment my dad died, I lost that earthly, God-given presence of a comfort and a guidance that just built confidence into my life. And yet, we have that constant guiding force in our lives in Jesus. But here's the amazing thing. The reason why it moves from terrifying to uh, something that is palatable, comforting, is because it came in what form? What's the form? Baby. A baby. See, Jesus wasn't born a 30-year-old carpenter. He wasn't born as a man. He was born as a baby. And the reason why God did that is because he knew to take the terrifying power and majesty of God out of the equation and put it in the category of comfort and guidance and care and compassion. Knowing we needed that, he put it in a baby. Because I'll tell you what, I mean, your kids have totally changed. I mean, that was hilarious. I, the, the, the other night we were on, you were on FaceTime with, with, your, with your wife and, and Paul, who had just played a basketball game, was crying. He was crying because he was dehydrated. Yet here's this amazing guy with these forearms, and he's as tall as Paul. He's a good-looking man, and he's tough, and he's playing basketball. He wants to play, have a basketball career, and he's crying about being dehydrated. I'm and dehydrated. And what did, what did you say to your son? How did you care for him, Paul? What did you say? I didn't. I said, let mommy do that. <laughs> You're not getting any sympathy for me. Dehydration. Go get water. <laughs> you said, You're, you're not getting anything from me, son. No. That's what you said. Uh, absolutely. That was pretty tough. And I meant it. And then <laughs> Shaniqua says, well, honey, you need to get off the phone so I can be mama and care for my baby. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cute. Can you imagine? Um, but that wasn't always the case. No, it wasn't. There was a time when Paul and Jeremiah and Savannah were little babies, small, little, innocent little babies. And, and what did you do? You Nurture. didn't treat them that way, did you? No, no. But I think here's, a, here's, a, here's a, just a, a new thought. Can you imagine what it was like to be Mary and Joseph holding the yeah. hope of the world in your hands? Yeah. And at this point, you are yeah. the only one who knows what he is here set to accomplish. Yeah. The only person that has ever been spoken to about what he's going to do outside of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who had predated them by hundreds of years, you're the only one who knows you're holding the hope of the world in your hands. And you're not looking just at the hope of the world, but you're looking at the hope, the hope for your life, the change and the transformation and the things that will change in your life because of what you hold. And I think sometimes we wrestle with what we hold in our hands. We're always looking forward to what's promised, right? Uh, a mentor told me, he used to say, hey, never give up what's in your hand for something that's promised. Right. So we have the hope of the world in Jesus sitting in our hands, yet we kind of find ourselves distracted looking for a different promise. 
And the baby is the cuddly yeah. little baby that you can hold and feel intimate with. And that's what God wanted to represent in Christ for us. Yes. So that we would, as Hebrew said, chapter 4, in that recognizing what is in our presence right now is something that we can actually enjoy and receive from. And so the Hebrew writer, writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, that we can now boldly enter into the presence of God. That we can go in because that we go in and we receive the comfort, we receive the care, and we receive the compassion of God. But there's something else in this passage that Wait, we need to thing. look at before. Okay, go ahead. There's a and difference look between boldness and timidity, yeah. right? In the Old Testament, you had to be very timid about approaching the presence of God. You had to be very thoughtful, yeah. meticulous. You had, to, uh, yeah. you had to enter the temple dressed in a certain way. And you had to, you had to enter the temple almost cleaned and purified before you came in. Cause if you didn't, you'd be struck dead in there and they'd have to drag you out with a, by a rope. Um, and so you were very timid, like I'm walking on eggshells to really get into the presence of the Lord to you get into Hebrews and it says you can not only walk in there, you can walk in there boldly. You can actually come in and kick in the door. You don't have to knock. You're not waiting to see what's behind door number one. You can walk in at any time, any thought, any manner, fully dressed, in workout clothes, in anything, and you can walk in boldly and talk to him in a way that you could not do that before. That is what's so radical about this, about uh, Emmanuel, God being with us, is it changes the total trajectory of how we interacted and encountered God in a way we could not experience him in, a, in, a, in, in previous times. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think of so many times during the day when I feel so alone, often I'm driving, I feel really alone, and I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, there's two struggles that people have today. It's they're lost and they're alone. And I think Jesus answers both of them. And in this case, he answers the aloneness. You are not alone. There is someone, there is a comforter in your life at all times. We never need to feel alone again. But the second thing, Jesus is Savior. His name is Yeshua. What does that mean, the idea to forgive our sins? So this is another one of those total, as you read the scriptures and you've read it several times, and you have this one thought that blows your mind again, and you're like, wait a minute, I've been reading this for years and just did not notice this. If you look in, um, was it Mark 2, and you hear the story of the paralytic and how they go and grab the paralyzed man, and he can't do anything of his own, or he's sitting right where he is. They pick him up. They get him to Jesus. Can't get in the house. They cut a hole in the roof. They drop him down. That's not great for real estate, Matt. I won't do that. Um, it's, not, it's not good for business. Uh, it's not good for your home. It's not good for anything, but they audaciously cut a hole in the roof. They let him down, and then he, he gets healed, but he doesn't really, Jesus doesn't pay a lot of attention to the healing. He doesn't make a comment about the healing until after he makes this statement. He said, just so that you know that I have the power to forgive sin. Now that may not seem as monumental on our end of the spectrum, knowing that we've had the gospel and we've been walking in that understanding for a long time. But for them, that is radically different 
to understand that he's saying, I have the power to forgive sin. In other words, I I'm changing everything you actually know about how your sin is accounted for. Because previously your sin was accounted for, you actually earned the forgiveness of your sin. How? It's because it was, a, it was a sacrificial system and it was lambs and goats and it was unblemished lambs and goats. And so people took that and turned that into a hustle. It became a business. So if you had a lamb but it was blemished and you couldn't bring it, well, you don't have to. You can buy one for me. Doesn't, you can buy one for me. It doesn't matter um, how much I charge you for it. I know what you want. You want the same thing I do. We both want to be forgiven and be cleansed. And at the same time, I want to make a profit as I do it. Right. And he basically says, you no longer have to earn the forgiveness of your sin that you have been working for your entire life. For once every year, you have been working and waiting for your sin to be forgiven. And in one fell swoop, I'm going to make one statement that changes everything you do. And it is because I have the power to forgive sin. You mean to tell me I no longer have to work for the forgiveness of my sin. I don't have to drag that heavy rock uphill or, or carry an extra pair of a pail of water or sacrifice the next animal. You mean to tell me you can actually forgive my sin? The, the challenge in it becomes this. If you're used to working for everything you get, then receiving a gift that you didn't work for is not only foreign, but it's uncomfortable. Because you don't feel like you have any value because you didn't work for it. And he's saying you don't have to work for it. I have the power to do it. And even if you tried, the dual dichotomy is, is you are utterly powerless to deal with it on your own anyway. I am going to level set your entire life by telling you I have the power to forgive sin. And then he says after that, Oh, by the way, I've healed you. Take up your mat and walk. And this, so it's uncomfortable because the man on the mat, you can imagine him just laying there like this. Jesus is having this whole dialogue. He doesn't know why he's there. And at the end, he gets to him and he says, oh, yeah, by the way, take up your mat and walk. And, and just so you know, I have the power. Just And it upsets everybody. And it really, I struggled with, why did it upset everybody so much? Was it just the, the, the culture and the system that had already been built? It was the, the, I think it was the fact that you just didn't know how to receive a gift that you didn't work for. You don't know how to do that. We don't know how to do that. We struggle with that all the time. How many times have we gotten Christmas gifts and then we get Christmas gifts trying to one-up the gift that we anticipate we're going to get? Why? Because we feel like we have to work for the gift we're going to get. So if you don't get me a gift, I can't take one. And Jesus said, here's a gift that you can't get, and you will take this one. Talk about the paralytic when he went from a wound to a healing. Oh, So it, this is a little bit mixed with um, the paralytic as well as Thomas. I know I feel like I'm going seven different places, but I'll get somewhere at some point. Um, so it really through the lens, I'll talk about him through the lens of Doubting Thomas. Now, we all know Doubting Thomas. We know he doesn't even have a real last name, but his full name is Doubting Thomas. That's the only way we actually know him. We don't ever talk about Thomas without doubting in front of it because of the mystique that surrounded him. Here are two things about Thomas that should clear his record a little bit. Thomas was only looking for what everybody else had already seen. 
the disciples, the other disciples had already seen Jesus healed. Thomas hadn't seen that yet. So Thomas is like, okay, you guys believe what you want, but until I actually see it, look at it live, then I'm not going to believe it. So Thomas sees Jesus eight days after the other disciples have already seen him. And so, the, but the la, let me take you back to the last time Thomas saw Jesus. The last time Thomas saw Jesus, it was with the crown of thorns on his head and he's bleeding from his temples. He's seeing the flesh that's hanging off his back and off of his ribs, even as he's sitting on the cross. He's watching him bleed from hands and feet because of the way the nails have been bored into, into his hands. They're, they're watching him get poked in, in the side. The only thing he's seen, his last indelible picture of who Jesus was, was a wounded Jesus. All he wanted was to see the healed Jesus. Now, stay with me. The power of who Jesus was was not experienced in his wounds, but was experienced in his scars. Here's the difference. A wound is an open sore that needs to be treated, right? And so until it's treated, it's always bleeding. It's always got some kind of discharge. You've always got to put a Band-Aid on it. You've always got to catch whatever is oozing out of it. I know that sounds gross, but, but that is a wound. A scar is not evidence that you've been wounded. A scar is evidence that you've actually been healed. Your body has done something and left a mark not to remind you that you were wounded, but to remind you that you were healed. So Thomas seeing Jesus the way he did and the disciples seeing him the way they did, he wanted to, to, to have the reminder of this is Jesus healed. This is not Jesus wounded. So Jesus's victory was not in his wounds, but they were in his scars, right? Most of us, um, I, I'll say it this way. People would rather experience the power of your scars versus the beauty of your mask, right? People would have much rather experience the power of your scar because that leads to the fact they know you've been healed. Then they would rather look at the beauty of your mask, the beauty of your covering, the beauty of the things that you protect behind a very nice, well-adorned mask. That stuff doesn't draw people to Jesus, it is the scars that you have that actually draw people to Jesus. It's because they can see that you've been through something that you've actually been healed from. So they have confidence and hope in the fact that they can walk into a healing because they've looked at your scars. And, what, and most of the time, people are put off when they can't get in behind the mask. Because anything... The mask is a level of beauty and perfection that people want we want people to see that's why social media is the way it is there's more airbrushing going on on social media than anything i've ever seen that's why artists are losing their jobs they don't air they can't airbrush the way they used to social media takes care of every picture every flaw every blemish you can put yourself in a place that you don't really exist you can place yourself in hawaii and be sitting somewhere in wisconsin 
because you can pick yourself up and put yourself in another place that's not actually real. And we spend more time lying to ourselves than actually telling ourselves the truth and allowing the Lord to look at our wounds, walk us through a process where our body heals and they become scars so that the rest of the onlooking world who has no hope and is isolated and part of the time they're isolated because they have wounds that they just feel like won't heal and there's no one who can help them because everybody looks perfect. And so it does, yeah. That, it's, that is, I think we all live there in that, in that place, in that struggle in between truly understanding what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to forgive your sins. Mm -hmm. And, and looking at our faults and looking at our imperfections as wounds that we need to heal rather than what Christ has come to do, bring full healing and leave a scar. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to close, but I, I don't want us to miss this moment because I wanted to get really personal. And Paul, you came out to California not to preach with me. You came out for a dear, very, very dear friend, a mentor, um, a young man, um, not a young man, a, a man that was mentoring under your, kind of your guidance to bring Young Life, New York Young Life ministry into Los Angeles, Angel. And we went to Angel's memorial service, Angel passed away, and had been dealing with some significant struggles, and um, I wanted you to share just briefly, it was an amazing memorial service, over a thousand people. I mean, incredible influence that this man has had. Yeah. And you've lost it. You lost a dear friend. And it's a, like a dream ended, a dream to see him flourish and to do what you're talking about, a scar being healed. Mm -hmm. um, and his wife, Andrea, got up and shared, and it was profound. And I think she pointed to this idea. Yeah. How did she say it? She said it in a couple of ways. One, one she said, uh, it was really a, a block of a, a charge and an encouragement and really a confession at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things she talked about was, is, hey, he had a struggle that he waited too late to get people involved in. And then she said, and I also waited too late to get people involved with me. So two of us really suffered in silence internally for a long time because we didn't let the appropriate amount of people in fast enough. Yeah. And then she finished with Angel was a man who loved God and yep. he loved people. Mm -hmm. But one of his short falls was that he didn't take properly care of himself. And he would often deal with his own struggles alone. And then she said, we all live with shame. We all live with imperfection. And here was the, 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 what I believe the takeaway for me personally, as I think of Angel and his life and his impact in my life, is what Andrea said, which was, don't live that way. Bring your shame and bring your imperfection to the Lord. You just bring it to the Lord. That's what forgiveness looks like. We off, just as often as we as often as we feel imperfect or experience imperfection or blemishes, as often as we are in that place of great struggle in our lives, mm -hmm. her words of wisdom were bring it to the Lord. We are all in the same boat. 
And I think to close this morning, let's, Denise, why don't you come up and share a story as we talk about um, this, as we close and talk about um, Jesus, our Savior, who we can come to because he does bring healing. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, Emmanuel, because he brings a presence that gets us. We were um, stand, we were sitting on the couch last night late just talking about, you know, the day, the service and everything and the passages that they were going to talk about. And the picture that came to mind is what I was going to share because this idea of being totally forgiven and being totally with. Think about a person in your life where you feel totally seen like all your junk, your good stuff, your bad stuff, but they see you. And then think about them seeing you like and being with you. So they see you, they forgive you, and they're with you. I don't think there's anything better here on earth than being known like that. And that's what Paul and Todd are talking about, where God forgives us. He's our Savior, but he's also with us. We did this um, exercise at our last retreat where there were two concentric circles. So one circle of women, and then outside of that circle, another circle of women. I was going to do it, but I think it'll take too much time. And the internal circle switched one woman every few minutes. So my sister was actually leading the time, and she's like, don't speak any words. Just look into each other's eyes and communicate through your eyes. And then she'd say, switch, and then you'd move, and then you'd look into the next person's eyes. And as we sat and stared into each other's eyes, because often we don't do that for each other, there was so much love communicated and understanding and like, I see you. Like, I, I see you young woman, or I see you older woman, or single woman, married woman. It was so powerful. We were, it was a very emotional exercise, just being seen, being, like, looking deep. How many times, you know, in your week do you actually look into the eyes of a friend and you know you're totally seen and loved? And that's why Jesus came. He came to die for all our imperfections and still look us in the eye with incredible love and to be with us. And there's nothing better in the world than to know that we are forgiven with all our junk and that we are seen and that someone is with us in that. It's hard to believe, but I would challenge all of us this week, even in the spirit of Christmas, even if it's with a Christmas song, hope maybe a Psalm or Luke or Mark reading through that, and just sitting and trying to gaze into the eyes of Jesus and sit in this place of being known, being forgiven, 
and being loved. I think as a community, we would be changed if we really sensed God loving us and seeing us and forgiving us.